This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I will never forget the phone call that upended this recent season of my life. Hello, is this Matt? Yeah. This is Dr. Smith. Uh-huh. Are you driving? Yes. Can you pull over and park? Oh, I don't think this is going to be good. And then I heard your scope, blah, blah, blah. Esophagus, blah, blah, blah. Cancer, blah, blah, blah. And I said, wait, are you saying I have cancer? He said, yes. Be prepared to clear your calendar. The next day, 9 a.m., I drove into the cancer center that's part of my health insurance plan. I noticed three things about it. First, at 9 a.m., the parking lot was crammed full. It's a lot of people here. I walk into the building, which is a huge building with lots of people working in it. And third, I realize there are a lot of people that are suffering from cancer. And then you take the intake, and they ask you questions like, can you still follow, swallow food? Can you still walk under your own power? And I'm thinking, I have absolutely no symptoms. They caught this through a random other test. I have no symptoms. And all the tests so far are incredibly encouraging that they've caught it really early. So I'm so grateful for that. And I have so much support. But then I realized there are so many people suffering from cancer in this wealthy affluent community. We all have stories of suffering. It may not be cancer, but you have a story of suffering. You have stories, if you've lived as long as I have, you, will, you have stories of suffering, multiple stories of suffering. And we're not done yet. There will be more stories of suffering, right? So I want to ask, what does the living God, the triune God that Christians worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what does he do, what does he say in the midst of suffering? And that's not an irreverent question because one of the things I discovered when I first started reading the Bible was just how shocking it is and how often it is that God invites, elicits, almost like cajoles us to bring our laments and our complaints and our doubts and our questions, almost like, come on, bring it on. I know you won't say it like this, so let me give you some words so you can say what I think you should say because you'll be too, too afraid to say them. So I'll give you the words. That's a good gift from our God. But what does this God have to say to our suffering? Well. I am not trying to give any kind of exhaustive philosophical theological answer. All I've been doing starting two weeks ago and then today is to give two what I think are very powerful and comforting clues. The first clue I talked about last Sunday, Isaiah chapter 43, I preached on that. And Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2, which says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. Fear not, for I am with you. Clue number one, whatever you go through, I will be with you. 
you let me be with you, I'll walk with you through the suffering. And I said two Sundays ago, we especially see that so clearly in the gospel and the life and the ministry of Jesus, whose very name was Emmanuel, God with us, who entered into the profoundest forms of human suffering, injustice, violence, rejection, betrayal, and then died a death on the cross, which was not a tragedy, but it was for us and for our salvation, as Scripture tells us. Now in Isaiah 64, we, or 65, we have another clue. So I want you to turn with me to your Bibles uh, on page, I believe it's page 624. We're going to walk through this because there's one clue and then lots of examples to buttress the clue. And the clue is simply this. What am I going to say? What am I going to do about suffering, says the living God? How about if I do this? How about if I cancel it? How about if I banish it? How about if I defeat it? How about if I transform it? So what was once suffering is now joy. Chapter 65, verse 17, for behold, I love that first word, behold, look at this, don't miss this, pay attention to this. I want you to know this, I want you to see this. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Now keep in mind, this is the very second to last chapter in a really long book called the book of Isaiah. And this was written to not people living very comfortable, privileged lives, but people suffering people, people on the margins, people on the edge, people whose lives were threatened, people who were vulnerable, people who had been invaded by a foreign army and they'd forced into exile and they lost their homes and businesses and they'd been separated from loved ones. They're aching to get home. And then they finally, now they've come home to their land, but they're a traumatized people in a traumatized land. Someone has defined this whole thing of sin and the fall of the world that has resulted from sin. Someone's put it this way. It means in the Christian worldview, whatever you're experiencing in the world right now, it's not the way it was supposed to be. There's, there's a fallenness, there's a brokenness as maybe you're too young for this, some of you, but maybe still like Bob Dylan, you know? His great song, Everything is Broken. Broken switches, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Great theology in there by Bob Dylan. The world is more broken than we ever dare to admit when we, according to the Christian story, when we lost our primal relationship with God, when that fell, when that was ruptured, it sent shockwaves throughout all of our relationships, our relationship with other people, our relationship within ourselves, our relationship with the environment. It all became broken. And we won't get the good news of Isaiah until we feel the weight of this. So these people were wondering, in the midst of suffering, why should we live for God? Why should, I, why should I open my heart to him? Why should I give my life to him? Why should I do that? Well, throughout Isaiah, God has been dropping clues, hints, of this final restoration. In chapter 2, God says, I'm going to take all the instruments of war, all the machinery, 
all the guns, all the drones that drop bombs on people, I'm going to take all of those and I'm going to turn them into agricultural equipment so people can grow plants with them. Chapter 4, God says, I'm going to take the filth of sin. Whatever filth has covered you, is covering you, will cover you, and God calls it filth, I'm going to wash it off of you. I'm going to wash you clean. You will be white as snow, it says in Isaiah chapter 1. Then in chapter 35, it says that persons with physical disabilities will leap for joy. These are just little hints at what's coming. It's like a little fireworks display. And now we get to chapter 65, and it's the grand finale. And God takes kind of like a lot of those themes that are sprinkled throughout the book of Isaiah, puts them into one big fireworks extravaganza. This is my grand finale, Isaiah chapter 65. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And in verse 18, he says, but be glad and rejoice forevermore in that which I create. You can't pull this off, but I can pull this off. I can create this. I can do this, so take joy. And why do we have joy? Look at verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people because God is joyful. Have you ever thought of the triune God as a joyful being filled with joy? Doesn't mean he doesn't suffer with us too. He does. He's tender. He's compassionate. He has wrath towards sin, but he is also joyful because he knows how it's all going to end. So he has joy, and he invites us into that joy. And now we're going to get concrete examples of how God turns not the way it's supposed to be into the way it is and was supposed to be. Gives us specific examples. And all throughout this, it's like, okay, the best analogy I could think of, it's like a particular strategy in soccer, okay? Now, maybe you like soccer, maybe you don't, but soccer is an amazing sport. It is the world's game. So there is this strategy in soccer which relies, your offensive strategy for scoring goals relies on the counterattack, the counteroffensive. So you just kind of lay back. You let the other team, you know, kick the ball around. You know, they're like, it seems like they're running circles around you. And you're just not, you're being really incompetent. It seems like a really weak strategy. And then all of a sudden, they get overconfident and they get sucked too deep into the other team's end. And then, bam, there's a counterattack. Boom, outlet pass. You got a three-on-one, you score the goal. It's a phenomenal strategy. Some teams do this really well. This is God's strategy. He relies on the counter-offensive, the counter-attack. And it looks like he's not in control, but oh, he is. Here's the examples. It's like a, it's like a mural with different panels to it. First one, look at verse 17. It says this, And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What are the former things? Well, that's a very specific thing in the book of Isaiah. It's actually a bundle of things. It includes basically all the sad stories of the world and your life. All the ways we've hurt or disappointed or wounded other people. All the ways we've ignored or ditched or dumped 
or rebelled against God's righteous ways and laws. I think it also includes all the trauma and hurt and heartache and tears of this world. You know, we say time heals all wounds, but it doesn't. It clearly does not. In his great book, The Body Keeps the Score, MD, Dr. Bissell van, van der Wer Kulk. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but I do have a quote from the book. I didn't write his name down. I just thought, I'll remember it. Yeah, it's no problem. <laughs> so he says this, Dr. Kulk. Um, Trauma happens to all of us, and it leaves traces. Traces are passed down in families. Traces on minds and emotions. Traces on our capacity for intimacy. Even traces on our immune system. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We say, it didn't hurt me. But your body knows better. Behold, God says, the former things shall be remembered no more. All those traumatic memories, events, will be healed. They will be no more in the new heavens and the new earth. Then look at verse 19. No more shall be heard in the, no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Most people in our culture, especially most men, it's not a critique, it's just kind of the way it is. We don't grieve loudly. We grieve silently, internally. We just tuck it inside. And again, maybe that's neither good or bad, it's just the way it is. But, but the bad part of it is, is that we think that therefore grief is gone. That somehow we've gotten rid of it. We don't carry it anymore. But we do carry it. It's this great line in this Great short story by Tim O'Brien, The Things They Carried, talking about soldiers in war and all the things they carry, all the photographs they carry and all the mementos they carry and all the weapons they carry. And, and then towards the end of the book, he does this incredible gripping shift where he talks about, well, I'll quote it. He said, they also, they carried all the emotional baggage of men who might die. Grief, terror, love, longing. By and large, they carried these things inside, maintaining the masks of composure. Isn't that true for many of us? We maintain the mask of composure, but we're carrying a load of grief or loss. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Look at those two words again that start that part of that verse. No more. I love that. As God says, there's going to come a time when I say, no more. That's enough. It's over. Now, you may wonder, why doesn't he do that now? Well, the Bible actually answers that question. It's a really good question. According to the Bible, it says, well, it's giving, it's actually God's mercy because he's giving us, humanity, time to repent and to come to faith. It's actually God's mercy that he doesn't just break in right now. But no more. Look at verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. 
I called my son Matt, who's a doctor in Papua New Guinea. I said, hey, what do you think about this verse? I'd like to get some sort of thoughts outside the United States. He said, oh, Dad, that verse just rings so true to us here. Because one of the things that was the hardest to get used to was how often children, newborns, and infants die. It just, you know, in Papua New Guinea, only the rich name their children when they're born. Most people don't name their children when they're born because they die so young, and it happens so often, and so they name their children when they're maybe a year old or maybe when they've been weaned. Then they think it's safe to give them a name. I was thinking about uh, verse, the other part of that verse where it says, an old man who does not fill out his days. And uh, by the way, that hundred years old is not like a literal statement, but it's a, it's a symbol of completeness. It's a symbol of wholeness. It's a symbol of like perfection. So as believers in Jesus reading this verse, we can't help but see it through the resurrection of Jesus and through eternal life in him. So we can't help but read it as Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. Death is swallowed up in victory. But, but that verse where it talks about that a young man shall die, a young man shall die 100 years old, an old man who does not fill out his days, there will be no more. I was talking to our friend, Pastor Michael Wright. He said, how many funerals have you done this year of young men who have died by gun violence on the streets of your neighborhood? He said, well, this year, only 10. Last year, maybe 20. You hear God saying, no more. No more. There's a couple more. A couple more no mores. No more injustice. Deacon Will preached such a great sermon last week on Isaiah 58. I encourage you to go read that chapter. It's so central to the message of Isaiah and the whole Bible. But verses 21 to 22, they shall build... They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. What's he talking about? Well, all throughout the ancient world and all throughout the majority world today, people's land and businesses are stolen routinely. So a woman opens a shop in Nairobi on the outskirts of Kibera, the largest slum in, in Nairobi, and somebody more powerful comes along and says, oh, this is a nice T-shirt shop. It's mine now. And she says, no, it's mine. He says, no, it's, I'm sorry. And she says, well, I'll call the police. He says, well, I already have them paid off. It's mine now. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, talks about this. It says, again, I saw the oppression that is done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. In this verse, the, he sees it. He goes, this is so wrong. This is so not the way it's supposed to be. But it happens so often, this injustice. And we know in our society, I mean, I love this country, but we also have many instances of injustice throughout our history and even today. God says, no more injustice. Also look at verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Have you ever had this happen where you try to pray and you just like, I don't know what to say. I have no words. Um, I just don't feel connected to God. It just feels, it just feels dull and gray and, and dry and, and I just don't feel like God cares about me. 
and so you just give up on praying. Or you're going through something, you're going through something suffering, and you do not feel the presence of God. Well, this verse says, in the new heavens and the new earth, you will have such a personal, palpable, touchable sense of the presence of God that you won't have that experience anymore. That will be no more. One more, no more. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and the dust and, the, and, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now, I love sitting on my back porch or my front porch and I love, I have hummingbirds come to my hibiscus flowers and we have robins. We have uh, cardinals, and I, I love it. We have huge oak trees all over the place. God's creation is beautiful. It's magnificent, but it's also fallen. Everything is broken. There is a predatory part of nature. Lions and wolves are predatory. We like to think we have control over nature. We like to think that we are the masters of nature. I read somebody that said back in 2017 in a New York Times bestseller, a book called Sapiens, he said, the days of global epidemics are over. Yeah, you laugh. They laughed in the first service too. And then two years, we stood helpless before a teeny tiny little virus. Cancer is predatory. Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and diabetes and bipolar are predatory. And God says, no more. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain. All week I've been thinking about this passage, and all week I've just had this, it's like doubt in my head. This doubt goes like this. Don't you think this all sounds too good to be true? I mean, really? It's nice. Pie in the sky, you know, opening of the masses and all that kind of stuff. And really? Is it kind of dumb to believe all this? Unintellectual? So I've been thinking, why do I believe this? I better figure that out before I preach on it. Well, here's what it boiled down to for me. I believe it because I believe in Jesus. I can start there, put that at the center. I believe what he said. I believe what he did. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he rose again. And I believe that the resurrection is like a first fruits. It's like a bundle of the first from the wheat harvest or the bushel of the first from the apple harvest. And it means that there's lots more to come. And because that bundle got through, you can get through, and I can get through. And according to one of the last verses of the Bible, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. He takes the words from Isaiah, he puts them on his own lips. Beautiful. And I believe that even better than that, he's invited me and you and all of our weaknesses and all of our sins 
to come to him. You know, here's the thing. The bar for getting in on all of this is remarkably low. I mean, the qualifications to qualify for this are shockingly low. Let me read to you Isaiah 55, earlier in this book. Come. Who? Everyone. What's the qualification? Who thirsts? That's the qualification. Anything else? Mm, nope. Well, there is one more thing, actually. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for what, that which does not satisfy? You need to be thirsty, and you need to stop going to the wrong wells to quench your thirst. Those are the two qualifications. So all week, all Sunday, every Sunday, that's, that's what we celebrate. We gather around the Lord's table. We hear Jesus' words, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, what are the qualifications? You're weary and you're heavy laden, and you come. Those are the qualifications. All week, I've also been thinking, what difference would this make? And I've been thinking about that all week. I've been thinking that during COVID, something gripped me, and I think something gripped our culture. Maybe it gripped you too. I don't know if this applies, but it was this, this thought, this, this sort of mindset that the highest goal of life is to not die. Let's just make it through. The highest goal of life is to just keep living. And the truly good life, how you define a truly good life is it's just, it's long. You live a long time, and then you die at a ripe old age, and that's a good life. Anything other than that is tragic. It's sad. It's tragic. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to live a long life. But you know when people say, well, you know, at least you're alive. Consider the alternative. And a Christian says, no, that's wrong. I have considered the alternative. It's looking pretty good. I don't mind the alternative. But I also want to live a long time. As somebody said after the service, I, I hope and pray you live to hold your great-grandchildren. I hope that's true, too. I'll do everything my doctors say. I'm very compliant. I'm like one of the best patients in the world. Seriously. But staying alive can't be your ultimate goal. It's just shooting too low. So I was thinking, what is the goal? And it just hit me in this passage, the goal is to be captivated by the beauty of the living God, to be filled with the joy that fills the triune God, to seize the hope that the living God says is coming to us, that there will be no hurt or destruction in all my holy mountain. It's to yearn to have those beautiful feet that it talks about elsewhere in Isaiah, to bring the good news to other people. It's to see the poor and those who are truly oppressed, who have no hope, who, as Ecclesiastes said, the tears of the oppressed, and nobody sees them. It's to see them. And as Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17 says, to seek justice, to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless, to plead the widow's cause, to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven now. 
And then, whether you live or die, the Bible says you are the Lord's, and you're in good hands. Whether you succeed or fail, whether you get bad news or good news, you are the Lord's. And I thought about preaching that, and I thought, man, last night, I don't feel this. I can't get there. But then I realized, you know what? It doesn't depend on my superior faith. It depends on his faithfulness. And what do we do Sunday after Sunday as a church? We bring our weakness, we bring our littleness, we bring our sins, we bring our baggage, we bring our burdens, we bring our griefs, we bring our losses, and we lay them before the Lord Jesus and we receive new life from him. And then we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.